just thank the band and the tech team and our volunteers and everybody. We had to, uh, we have to get here at about 7.50 in the morning and uh, we pray and then we just go to work so that when we gather together, you've got a place to sit, you've got words to see, you can hear the music, we can take communion. Um, it's a joy and so much work has already got in, especially as we're working the kinks out. Last week, we, uh, we hope that this week is better than last week, just in terms of smoothness of things. Uh, and we hope that every week things get a little bit better. And last week, what we talked about was the importance of we really want to be a church where everybody is willing to help out with whatever. And also, we want to be a church where people are using their gifts. So, so we don't want to be a church where people are just using their gifts and saying, oh, I don't have the gift of setting up chairs, so I don't, won't do that. Um, and at the same time, we don't want people just to set up chairs if, if, if they also have the gift of being hospitable or welcoming people well. And so we want everybody in this church serving um, because we really feel like if you're going to reach a city, uh, the primary way in which we're going to connect with the city is going to be uh, on Sunday morning. It's going to be inviting people into our home. This is our home home now. Uh, and so if you want to get involved, I encourage you to do that. And then I just want to also emphasize again the, uh, that we have a, a men's retreat. Uh, uh, um, oh, I think it's just called Man Camp. Um, and then we've got uh, the Women's Fall Kickoff Hospitality Gathering and Greeting Time. So it's Man Camp versus uh, the Women's Fall Kickoff. You can see in the namings how men and women are different. Okay. Um, if you have a Bible, would you open up to Judges? Judges is the seventh book in the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. And Judges is where we are going to spend the next 10 weeks. And it's going to get dark. <laughs> it is getting dark outside as we get closer and closer to now winter solstice with the summer just barely behind us. Uh, it's going to get darker earlier. We'll hit daylight savings time, and, and then, or maybe we won't. I don't know what the government's going to do. But that's the plan, I think. It's going to get darker. And as it gets darker in our world, it's going to get darker in the text that we're going to spend time in. Because if you haven't been in Judges for a while, uh, I, 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 it's a dark book. Um, it's real dark. And it's going to be a wonderful season of reflecting on God's faithfulness and our need of God. And so that's what this series will look like. If you're unfamiliar with Judges, Judges is a series of stories, and so we are going to take the text as it comes to us in these larger chunks. You'll notice that this morning, the title of my sermon is Mostly Faithful Isn't Faithful, um, and also uh, the text is Judges 1 verse 1 all the way through Judges 2 verse 5. We won't read all of that text, but because Judges comes in these stories, we will take them in the chunks that they come in. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible's story, let me give you just a brief idea of where Judges begins. Let me give you a, a notion of the setting and the cycle that exists through Judges. But the theme of the book, you might be able to just point to as being the final verse of Judges, and we'll see it as we move along. This is just from Judges 21-25. Uh, this kind of frames the book. In those days... 
Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. You can imagine just for a moment, in those days, uh, a family had no parents. And so all the children did as they saw fit. You can imagine what kind of home that would be, um, which is why we do uh, child dedications. But the, the framing of judges is what happens to God's people when they don't have a king. And everyone just does whatever they think is right in their own eyes. And is God faithful in the midst of that? And, and, and what happens when we live like this? What happens in our world? What happens in our church? What happens in our homes? What happens in our very lives? So that's the sort of general idea of the book. That's the kind of theme of the book. If you're familiar with the Bible, uh, God's people are delivered from Egypt. They're delivered from slavery. They go through the Red Sea, and then they arrive in the wilderness where they march around for a while, anticipating a time when they would enter the promised land. And Moses does not go into the promised land. Only Joshua and Caleb get to go into the promised land. And they're the only members of the previous generation that get to do that. And God's people comes into the promised land. And they are to come in and their responsibility as they get to the promised land is to drive out the people who already live there. See, the, the, the space that God gave them um, was a space that was already occupied by the Canaanites. And the Canaanites are wicked. I'll get to that in a second. But God's people are to come into the space. They are to drive out the Canaanites. And then this promised land that's given to God is to be the gift that God has given to them to be his people. And as you read Judges, what we discover is a cycle of, I'm going to call it a cycle of darkness. What will happen is um, it will kind of go like this. The, God's people will sin and they will not live according to the way God's called them to. And that will get them into big trouble. And when they're in trouble, they will then cry out to God. And after they cry out to God, God will send a judge. Now, a judge here isn't someone with a gavel on a bench and, a, and, a, and sitting up on high. A judge is, um, is really like a, a, a rescuer, a hero, a hero. God will use these very flawed heroes to rescue his people. And so a judge will step in, will help God's people along, and then there will be a time of peace, and then they will forget God, and they will sin again. And it will lead to trouble. And it will lead to them crying out. And it will lead to a judge. And then it will lead to peace. And then they will sin again. And every time that they sin, the sin will get worse. And the state of everything will get worse. So it's sort of a cycle of darkness. And we'll begin to touch on the beginning of that cycle just this morning. And Judges, as Judges begins, um, again, God's people are headed into the land. And the Canaanites who have been there are to be driven out. Now, anytime we are in the Bible and we are teaching about um, God calling his people to drive out other people, it is kind of normal in our context today to see that as problematic. What I want you to understand 
are two things. First, um, the commitment and call of God's people today has now been firmly established by Christ. And Christ has called us to love our enemies. So if you meet a Christian who says that God has called them to kill their enemies or to drive them out, they're lying to you. That's first. But secondly, I want you to understand the Canaanites were extremely wicked and God had been extremely patient. The Canaanites um, practiced all kinds of sexual deviancy, including uh, they would sacrifice their children to their gods. In fact, it's remarkable that often when we read a book about God calling Israel, who is very much weaker compared to the Canaanites, the Canaanites have big technology, and they've got a, a lot to be, uh, that, that Israel would admire. Um, Israel's the weaker nation. As they're driving out the Canaanites, it would be strange for the Canaanites or for Israel to think that 2,000 years later, there'd be a group of people that would be more sympathetic. After all, even the Canaanites aren't sympathetic to this cause. In, Josh, in, in, sorry, in Judges chapter 1, verses 7, there is a, uh, a Canaanite king who is captured. And uh, this is what, uh, uh, oh, sorry, no, if you, oh, sorry, if you have your Bible, it's in Judges chapter 1, verse 7. You'll see in Judges 1, verse 7, this Canaanite king, Adonai Bezek, he is a Canaanite king, he gets captured, and he says, 70 kings with their thumbs and big toes cut off have picked up scraps under my table. Now God has paid me back for what I did to them. So the Canaanite king is like, I get it. It's been a long time coming, given all that I have done in the world. So Israel is to come into the promised land. They are to clear the land. And the reason they are to clear the land is so that the promised land would be their home and a place where they would then be able to magnify and glorify God as their God. They're to be a set-apart people. They're to be different than the other nations. And so it's not really about the Canaanites. It's about God saying, this is your land, and you're to come in here, and you're to live as my faithful people fully committed to me. Well, if you're in Judges, the first 26 verses of Judges start off with Joshua, who has passed away. And then they are to take the land, and it starts with Judah and Simeon. And in the beginning of Judges, the first 26 verses, um, they, they begin to, to, to work on taking the land. And as they're taking the land, they're mostly faithful in doing what God has called them to do. They, they win victory after victory militarily, and things look good. That's the first you know, 20 or so verses of Judges chapter 1. They're off to a good start. But then there's this little verse we're going to look at a little bit later, um, which is Judges 1.19, which says this. In the middle of, of things going well for Israel, it says, The Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots filled with iron. So, so they were called to sort of drive out the Canaanites, and they mostly did that. And then as you get to verses 
you know, 29 through 36, we discover that, again, you'll, you'll hear again and again and again that other tribes mostly did what God said to do. The Benjamites, they didn't really drive them out. The tribes of Joseph, they were mostly successful. Manasseh was not successful, but Manasseh did make the Canaanites serve them. Ephraim didn't finish the task. Zebulun didn't drive them out. Asher didn't drive them out. Naphtali didn't drive them out. But Naphtali did allow that the Canaanites that stayed in the promised land, they did make them work for them. The Danites got stuck in the hill country. The Amorites kept them there. But eventually they won, and they got the Canaanites also working for them. If you read Judges chapter 1, you're, you're anticipating God's people going into the promised land, driving out the Canaanites, taking the gift that God has for them. And you get to the end of Judges 1, and your takeaway is kind of, it's pretty good. Things are looking pretty good. They did mostly what God told them to do. And so then when you get to Judges chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, you get God's assessment of all of chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, that's where we're going to spend our time, is in Judges chapter 2, God's assessment of Israel in Judges chapter 1. And this is God's assessment of his people as they have been mostly faithful. The angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum and said, I brought you up out of Egypt and led you into the land I swore to give your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall not make a covenant with the people of this land. But you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? And I have also said... I will not drive them out before you. They'll become traps for you. Their gods will become snares to you. When the angel of the Lord had spoken these things to all the Israelites, the people wept aloud, and they called that place Bochum. And there they offered sacrifices to the Lord. Judges chapter 1 they head into the promised land, military victory, things are going pretty well. Other sort of, you know, other sort of uh, opportunities to drive them out go mostly well. And we finally hear from God in Judges chapter 2. And what does God say? God says, you have disobeyed me. Their assessment was, we were mostly faithful. God's assessment was, you disobeyed me. The older I get, the more I realize movies I love are not always seen by younger generations. So I got an opportunity to show a high school student a couple of weeks ago the movie The Princess Bride. 
How many of you have never seen The Princess Bride? Okay, I'm in, I'm in my, these are my people. You are my people. Do you remember that scene in The Princess Bride where Miracle Max is given Wesley? Wesley has been, he's been put through the machine. He's brought on the table. Miracle Max, played by Billy Crystal, says, we got to hear him speak. And uh, Indigo Montoya says, like, uh, we can't. He's dead. And Billy Crystal character, Miracle Max, says, he's not, he's not, he's not dead. He's only mostly dead. He says, there's a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. And he says, he's only mostly dead. When you read Judges chapter 1, it's easy to see that God's people are mostly faithful. They're mostly faithful. But there's a big difference between mostly faithful and all faithful. In fact, mostly faithful isn't faithful. God says in verse 2, you failed. You failed to break down the altars. This was never about the Canaanites. God says, I want you to worship me as my people. And you have allowed other gods to live in this land to be worshipped alongside of me. I wanted you to break down their altars, and yet you made a covenant with them. You disobeyed me. Why have you done that? Israel, you thought you were faithful. You were only mostly faithful. And mostly faithful is unfaithful. Brothers and sisters, let me ask you. Have you in your life with God settled for mostly faithful? Have you said to God, God, I'll do these things, but I'm not going to do that thing. I'm going to be mostly faithful. God, you've asked a lot of me, and I'm honest with you. I'll give you what I can, and I'll obey all of those commands of yours that I really like, I'm good with. But that command that I don't like, I'm not going to obey. You've called me to give and serve and work in this area, and I'll do that until it inconveniences me, and then I'll choose myself. But you should be okay because I've been mostly faithful. Or we read through the New Testament and God says, be holy as I am holy. And we go, that sounds really hard. So instead, I'm just going to be a little holy. I'll settle for a little holy. Mostly faithful. God is not interested in partway Christianity. God did not want his people mixing with idols. He didn't want his people to look like Canaan. And as we go through Judges, you'll see they'll begin to look more and more like Canaan than like God's people. They were to be different, and they didn't look different. I I think sometimes we misunderstand, and you have to get this. Don't let anybody fool you on this. God wants you to be happy. 
But the way that God wants you to be happy is by calling you to be holy. When when I say holiness, I know that we do not receive that word as a delightful one. When I say be holy, many of us see holiness as a burden. Many of us see holiness as difficult, and it is difficult. But you need to understand that when God calls you to be holy, it's for your happiness. You cannot be happy without being holy. God had said, I'm giving you this gift, this land. I want you to live in a particular way. I want you to be set apart so that you might fully enjoy my pleasure. But instead... They didn't do it because they thought they didn't have to be holy. And maybe the reason that they, they thought about that is because maybe they thought, well, we just think that our way is going to lead to greater happiness than God's way. Maybe they thought, God, we don't really like your rules. We don't really want rules. I often hear people say, um, Christian faith, like there's too many rules in Christian faith. And then someone goes, it's not rules, it's a relationship. And I'm like, yeah, I get that. But, but the reality is, I think we then diminish that God gives us rules to live by because God wants us to flourish. And when we minimize, have you ever played a game with no rules? Probably haven't. It's a terrible idea, Right? Just with no rules, help to create the joy that comes about in the kinds of games we want to play. In the same way, God wants you to flourish and he wants you to delight in him. And the way that you do that is through the pursuit of holiness. God says, do you you hear God's, can you hear God speak in the midst of this? Why have you done this? This this could have been yours. I had this land for you, and it could have been yours, but, but you decided to only be mostly faithful, and you allowed little sins to, make, to, to, to take up residency in the nation, and because you allowed little sins to continue to live here, you're going to miss out on the beauty of what it is that I have for you. If you want all of God's goodness, you have to pursue all of God's faithfulness. God wanted Israel to be a light to the nations. He wanted to be able to point to them and say, look, this is my people. Look how different they are. Look how they know me. Look how they're in relationship with me. God wanted his face to shine on them that they might shine to the nations. But because they decided to be mostly faithful, they're going to miss out on that blessing. I want to challenge some of you Some of you, you you have allowed sin to take residency in your life. And your inability to deal with it is the thing that is going to keep you from experiencing the pleasure of God and to shine as as the glory of God to the world that desperately needs him. So why did they fail? I will be brief. 
but here are reasons I believe that Israel fails God and the reasons we fail. Here's why they were mostly faithful. These are three reasons they settled for mostly faithful and three reasons we settle for mostly faithful. The first one is they forgot the command. They, They forgot the command. They forgot that God's command was a command. They started to treat God's command as suggestions. I hear you, God, but I like my way more than your way. Or maybe, maybe they thought, I can't really do what God's asking me to do. God, you're calling us to do this, but we can't do it. There's this weird contradiction in these two texts that I want to look at. Look at this. In Judges chapter 119, the Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. In Judges 2, God says, you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? Wait, hold these next to each other, and what do you see? What's the explanation in 119? We're unable to do it. What's the explanation in 2.2? You disobeyed me. I I want you to see this, right? Their posture was... We couldn't do it. And God's posture is, you wouldn't do it. God, I can't do this. No, you won't do this. They say we could not. God says they would not. They say, can't, God says, won't. Sometimes we say, God, I can't do it. And God, who is so faithful, and we'll see his faithfulness again and again in the book of Judges, but sometimes we say, God, I can't do it. And God loves us enough to pull back the self-deception that we're causing and to say, hey, you're saying you can't do it. Let me tell you the truth. This is not an issue of can't. This is an issue of won't. Sometimes we say we cannot, and God says, no, you will not. Where are you in your life right now saying, God, I can't? And God's saying, no, you won't. In 1 Corinthians 10, 13, the text says that God is faithful. He would never let us be tempted or tested beyond what we could bear. But when we're tested, he'll provide a way out so we can endure it. God will never put you in a situation where you cannot obey him. Are you unable to do it, or are you refusing to do it? Now, some of you in this room right now are like, I can't forgive. I cannot forgive that person. Well, the problem with that is that in Matthew 6 and Matthew 18, God commands that we forgive. So we say, I can't forgive. And God says, no, you must forgive. Well, I can't forgive. And God says, no, you won't forgive. Don't ever say, I can't, when what you mean is, I won't. I I can't tell them the truth. It would be too hard. Ephesians chapter 4 says that we're called to speak the truth in love. I can't tell the truth. That's going to be too difficult. I can't do it. God says, no, you won't do it. 
God, I cannot stop this one sin in my life. I can't do it. God says, no, you won't. Now, careful here, because I don't want you to think that the sin in your life you're able to overcome through your own power. But here's what you can do. You can humble yourself. You can ask for prayer. You can get accountability. You can get help. You can cry out to God. You can do those things. You can start with hating the sin as opposed to trying to manage it. God, I can't deal with this sin in my life. God says, no, you won't. You can't or you won't. They forgot that what God had commanded them was not a suggestion. It was a command. Secondly, they forgot the commander. They forgot the commander. I love this. Back here in Judges 1.19, the Lord was with the men of Judah. They took possession of the hill country, but they were unable to drive out the people from the plains because they had chariots fitted with iron. What happened? God, we couldn't do it. We couldn't take possession of the, of the, of the plains. We, we couldn't do it. Why not, God says? Well, because they had chariots fitted with iron. Oh, really? What, 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 what happened? See, God, you called us to drive them out. You called us to do it. And then we saw they have chariots with iron. What do we have? What are we supposed to do, God? And God says, what? Are you, are you kidding me? They have iron chariots? Can, can you imagine standing before God and saying, God, I can't obey you because of the iron chariots? They have iron chariots. You have God Almighty. You have God with you, living in you, present in your life. What are we going to do? They have iron chariots. The problem is they, they, they didn't believe that they had the commander of all of creation on their side. He had their back. And so they became focused on the problem and not on his presence. See, the reason sometimes we are mostly faithful is because we are focused on the problem and not on the presence of God. Remember when Peter started walking on water? Jesus calls him out of the water. What happens? He sees the wind. He sees the waves. He gets terrified. He begins to sink. Jesus didn't call him into the water if he wasn't going to provide him the ability to be able to walk on water. Jesus never calls you to do something that you can't do without his help. But sometimes the things that we're called to do can only be done by remembering the one who commanded you to do so. Walls don't crumble by themselves. Giants don't fall by themselves. The dead don't rise by themselves. Apart from the power of God, those things don't happen. But if God is calling you to do something, he is going to give you himself so that you can be faithful in the doing of it. But they have iron chariots. You have God. You have the almighty maker of heaven and earth. 
If he calls you to do it, he will help you accomplish it. Listen, it's scary. Let's not kid ourselves. At some point, the men of Judah, it says the Lord was with them. But at some point, even though the Lord was with them, they were looking at the chariots filled with iron and caused them to go, we can't do it. It was scary. Maybe it felt overwhelming for them or impossible. Let me ask you, are you focused on the chariots of iron or are you focused on the maker of heaven and earth? He made the universe at his word. And we're saying, God, I don't see a way. They have iron chariots. The question is not, can we do this? Or can I do this? But the question is, does God want me to do this? And if God wants you to do it, he will make sure you can do it. Third, and finally, they forgot the covenant. Notice that in Judges chapter 2, verse 1, the first thing that God says to them is, I brought you up out of Egypt. Remember that? I led you into the land I swore to give your ancestors. I said, I will never break my covenant with you. What is God's first thing? He says, let me remind you of what I did. Let me remind you of where I brought you. Let me remind you of what I promised you. Let me remind you that I keep my promises. I brought you out. Remember who I am. Some of you have lost the joy of your salvation. You have forgotten that when you read the Bible and you hear about God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt, he provided, right, he, he took all of the Red Sea, he parted it so that God's people could be delivered. He did that for them, and what he did for you is greater. Do you get that? Do you get that Israel were slaves to Egypt, but you were a slave to sin? Do, do you get what God did to save you from your sin? Do, do you understand that when you were born, you were born with a terminal disease, rebellion towards God, where you would hear what God asked you to do and you would say, no, I'll do it my own way. And because of that, you were in the wrong side of a relationship with a holy God a righteous judge who has every right to declare to you because of your sin, we are not one and unified in the way that we should be. And God would be just and right in doing that. Did you understand that, that at your core, when you were born, you were born into a rebellion against the God who made you? And do you understand that the very God who you're in rebellion to chose out of his love, mercy, and grace to be reunified to you by sending his son Jesus to the cross to pay for all of your sins, to die the death that you should have died, to cleanse you completely, to restore you completely, to put his spirit inside of you? Do you understand what he did for you? Because if you understood what he did for you, you'd be far more likely to rejoice in your salvation rather than treat it as just a perk of having a Bible. Remember his faithfulness. 
God is faithful even when we aren't. I wonder if we have settled for mostly faithful when God has called us to be faithful. I wonder how many of you have forgotten that what God called you to wasn't a suggestion, it was a command. I wonder how many of you have forgotten that the one who called you to do it promised to be with you in it. I wondered if you forgot what he's done for you. They did. May it not be the same for us. Church, we started. We started down the pathway of faithfulness. We bear responsibility to finish. Let's pray. God, too often we settle for mostly faithful. Too often we pat ourselves on the back, feeling like, well, we're doing our best. And we've forgotten that you called us to holiness, that you've given us your son, that you've filled us with your power, that you've saved us and reconciled us. God, deliver us from the temptation to settle at being mostly faithful. I pray for those who are struggling with addictions in this room. God, would you help them become faithful in combating those addictions? God, I pray for those who you have called to forgive. Would you help them to forgive? But don't let them settle for not forgiving. Don't let us settle for not telling the truth. Don't let us settle for not loving our enemies. You called us to love our enemies. Lord, we don't want to settle at not loving our enemies. We want to be completely faithful. We can't be faithful apart from you. And you have been faithful to me and to us in the midst of our unfaithfulness. That's the beautiful thing about your grace, God, is that while we press on towards the goal, while we seek to be holy as you are holy, we stumble and fall constantly, and your grace and your faithfulness are just piled onto our lives again and again and again. There is no end to your faithfulness to us. So we don't rest in our faithfulness. We rest in your faithfulness. You've been faithful to us. But we ask that you would help us to then, out of your faithfulness, be a faithful people. Not a mostly faithful people, but a faithful people. Help us to do everything you've called us to do. Help us to never be satisfied with 80%. 90%, even 99%. Let us never be satisfied. Let us always be in pursuit of holiness. And every time we fail and every time we fall, which is moment by moment, hour by hour, day by day, help us to look again to your cross and to your faithfulness, to the covenant you made with us because you always keep your promises. Every promise in you is yes and amen. And we thank you that you forgive us again and again and again and again and again and again. We pray for those who are here who do not know you. 
who have never turned to you, never received you as their Lord and Savior. We pray for those right now who are sitting in this room who do not have a relationship with you because they are at odds with you. Help them to see that you have in your love and grace made the first move towards them. You sent Jesus to die on the cross so that they might be reconciled to you, so that they might become your adopted children. We pray that that would happen for some today. And be with us as we continue to worship you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.